Welcome to this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast, uh, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. Uh, I am your host, Dave Ingram, and I'm very excited to welcome two guests today for a conversation regarding infant sleep apnea. Uh, Dr. Renee Shellhaus is a pediatric neurologist and sleep physician at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and C.S. Mott Children's Hospital. And Dr. Amit Daftari is a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep physician at the University of Indiana School of Medicine and Valley Children's Hospital. Uh, many thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for, for having, having us. So um, today uh, I'd like to talk about infant sleep apnea with you guys. And this is an area where both of you have recently published uh, some research findings uh, that we'll get to. But before we talk about those two studies, uh, I'd like to first talk about what we already know about infant apnea or studies that have been done in the past. So historically, uh, people have had quite an interest in infant apnea because uh, they were trying to uh, unravel the mystery of SIDS and uh, figure out if infant apnea or infant sleep apnea, how that fits into that. So uh, can you guys review for our listeners what was known about infant sleep apnea and any possible association with SIDS? Uh, and what, you know, specifically did the CHIME study tell us about infant apnea? So I think that uh, the interest in infant um, apnea has been there ever since uh, NICUs were first established in the 40s and 50s, and neonatologists were always interested in identifying uh, the frequency of apneas, apneas and bradycardias. And then as we started uh, recognizing SIDS, um, the natural tendency was to see if there was an association between apneas and bradycardias and, and SIDS. And when you look at the technology, it has significantly evolved from the 1940s. And most of the literature that has been published uh, around infant apnea and SIDS is from the 80s and early 90s. Um, the early recordings were usually bi-channel recordings, primarily using uh, transthoracic impedance or strain gauges and electrocardiography, and then eventually uh, other uh, measures such as thermistor, airflow, as well as oxygen saturation also started getting, adding, started getting added on. And then a lot of this early literature really had not standardized the definition of respiratory events. Um, some took events as less as three seconds, some longer than 15 seconds, some 20 seconds. And then as technology evolved, people started introducing respiratory inductance per seismography. And then some tests were performed in a home setting, some were performed in hospital settings, some under observation. So overall, there was so much of technological variance that it was very difficult to start making sense of this data. And what's started getting uh, apparent was that a lot of events were primarily central in nature, but then obstructive events also started getting identified. And one of the earliest studies that started exploring the question about SIDS, um, which I would like to just briefly go over, is by Kahn, who looked at a Belgian database, epidemiologic database of over 20,000 polysomnograms, these were actually attended polysomnograms performed with transthoracic impedance, thermistor airflow monitoring, oxygen saturation, uh, and electrocardiography. And they found that of these 20,000, they had identified about 30 infants who had 
eventually succumbed to SIDS. So in effect, these people actually had prospective um, studies uh, as a risk predictor for SIDS, and they found that uh, nothing specific jumped out about these infants except for the fact that they seemed to have more autonomic instability. So they had a little more reflux and a little more sweating and were found to be a little less restless. But apart from that, none of the cardiorespiratory parameters particularly stood out as compared to uh, 60 control infants that they had selected at around the same age. And then besides this, a lot of the associations with SIDS have really been circumstantial. Uh, we cannot clearly say that there is a cause and effect relationship between sleep apnea and SIDS. All, can, all we can say is that there are some associations. So diving into the CHIME study itself, which really looked at 1,079 infants, of which about 306 were term infants, what this study really aims to do was uh, see if the prevalence of apneas, uh, you know, what that was, uh, and they defined these as conventional events in association with certain oxygen desaturations and extreme events, where there was extreme bradycardia and events lasting more than 30 seconds. And they found that the younger the infants were amongst the premature group of infants, the higher the prevalence. And by the time they reached post-conceptional age 42 weeks, these events had largely dissipated. And interestingly, even term babies actually experienced some of these events. Now, the limiting factor about the study was that it was based off just three, uh, just three minutes of recording uh, in the initial hour uh, of every 24-hour period, and these infants were monitored for almost six months. Um, so in that sense, we're getting only snapshots of data. And it looked at respiratory inductance plethysmography and oximetry, uh, as well as EKG, but it didn't have any airflow data. And then subsequently, Deborah Wiesmeyer did a confirmation study using polysomnography and found that almost 50% of the respiratory events uh, that were picked up by polysomnography were not picked up by the CHIME monitors. So it's interesting that, you know, a lot of this data is there, um, but it's kind of all over the place. We know that polysomnography, as it is performed in a comprehensive manner, seems to be a far more sensitive test. And, and a couple of interesting observations is that if you look at the CHIME data, really the respiratory frequency of events goes down as you reach post-conceptional age, if you look at the peak incidence of SIDS, that happens at about two months of age. And then if you also think about um, the Khan study, uh, which found respiratory events, both obstructive and central, occurring in the, you know, the prospective um, manner for SIDS, um, it's interesting that uh, you know, one of the recommendations for SIDS prevention is actually back to sleep. So if obstructive events were a significant factor, then that would be surprising that the back to sleep is actually <laughs> uh, the recommendation that uh, reduced the frequency of SIDS. So I'm going to let uh, Renee also yes, contribute. I, I think I took up a lot of time. No, that's okay. That's an excellent, excellent summary. Um, I think one of the things that uh, is a good take home for me as a, as a child neurologist who spends a lot of time looking after babies in the NICU and in the hospital, I get asked a lot, why does my baby seem fine on the bedside monitor, and yet when they get a polysomnogram in the hospital, you tell me that the baby has all of these respiratory events. Um, and so that that understanding that you you just went over about how the, the technique of recording the 
respiratory events makes a huge difference into as to how much we find and, and what we find. I don't think that's widely understood um, by non-sleep medicine physicians, for example. Uh, so I had a I had a discussion last week with a, a pediatrics resident about a, an infant who had multiple events on an overnight polysomnogram, and she said to me, but the baby looks fine at the bedside. Um, but that's because they're looking for extreme events where the baby has no respiratory effort for 20 seconds, um, and that the, the pulse oximeter alarm um, only goes off uh, for prolonged events, again, because the signal is averaged over a long period of time in order to decrease alarm fatigue um, when you're in a NICU setting. Uh, that's really important to make sure that we are paying attention to the extreme events, but we've, we're going to lose track of some of the smaller events. That's a great point, Renee. And both of you uh, mentioned kind of the difficulty or the challenge of applying the, the results from these prior studies to our current uh, measurement you know, uh, methods uh, where our definitions are different, our equipment may be different. And so that's that's why your both of your studies here recently were so kind of exciting for us. So can you both uh, very briefly uh, tell us how, how your, what your scoring criteria were during, on your studies uh, in the two research papers you guys just published and how you recruited your subjects, your subjects for those studies? The, once the American Academy of Sleep Medicine came up with the uh, standardized scoring criteria for staging for infants um, under two months of age, that's when we decided to do our study because it set the bar for how the uh, staging of these sleep studies should take place. And several years had already elapsed since the 2007 guidelines and several modifications thereafter from the scoring manual on how respiratory events should be identified and scored. So with that um, long history of establishing respiratory scoring and now the definite uh, criteria for staging, we proceeded with our study and it took almost two years to recruit our patients because we were very selective in uh, meticulously identifying what we thought uh, would be uh, as normal and as healthy newborns as we could possibly find. <laughs> um, so uh, we basically looked at the Indianapolis metropolitan area. We had flyers which helped to identify uh, babies that were uh, born to mothers 17 to 40 years of age um, who had normal pregnancies um, and normal deliveries. None of these babies had any kind of um, postnatal uh, symptoms like strider, snoring, any kind of respiratory disturbances, tachypnea, the mothers had to be free of any um, medications besides, you know, uh, any kind of prenatal vitamins or periodic uh, brief courses of antibiotics that they may have received for a UTI or something like that through the pregnancy. They certainly not, uh, shouldn't have had any hospitalizations for anything during pregnancy. And one of the things that stood out with our study as compared to the CHIME was that almost 16% of mothers in the CHIME study actually smoked and we were careful to make sure that none of our patients' uh, parents were involved in smoking or, for that matter, any substance abuse. Uh, if you also look at the data on SIDS, one of the risk factors is presence of a sibling who has succumbed to SIDS, and so we made sure that uh, none of our patients had any, our study subjects had any uh, family history of SIDS either. So in that sense, we really... Uh, curated out a group of infants uh, could be as normal as we could possibly imagine. <laughs> so, 
That is a remarkable, remarkable effort. <laughs> we, in our studies, um, have been focused on babies who are at risk for abnormal development. Um, and so the the work that we did, we, we used the same scoring, um, the same really the same approach, except for that our polysomnograms were longer in duration, so we did 12-hour PSGs um, and recruited newborns who were, cons were considered at risk for neurodevelopmental disability. Um, and the first study that we looked at, really the primary um, goal of the study was to look at um, sleep architecture um, and objective sleep data that may be uh, predictive of developmental outcomes. And we did find um, that there were quantitative measures like um, increased quiet sleep time uh, and decreased low, uh, low frequency EEG power during, during quiet sleep uh, that did predict outcomes for these babies. All of the babies were recruited based on somebody's being concerned that they had seizures, so they had EEG monitoring in place. Uh, and then we added all of the additional um, leads necessary for a full PSG. Uh, we then looked to see, okay, well, what did their um, breathing patterns look like? What what were the apneas and hypopnea profiles uh, in that group, and did that actually predict their, their Bailey scores at 18 to 22 months? And what we found actually was our um, overall AHIs were actually lower than what you reported in your um, normals, which is interesting, um, although perhaps not statistically significant um, with an average AHI of 10.1 over the over the 12 hours of polysomnogram recording. Um, and that as we looked at um, their predictive value for 18-month Bailey outcomes, we found actually there was not a predictor of um, any of the respiratory aspects of the PSG uh, for Bailey 3 scores. Uh, now, that doesn't necessarily, in my mind, mean that um, Neonatal sleep disorder breathing has nothing to do with long-term outcomes. Um, rather, that for this particular group and with this sample size, so the the sample for, that had Bailey's was relatively restricted at um, 28. Um, that we may need to have larger samples, and we may need to measure different parameters in order to to really understand the the outcomes. And I think for both studies, one of the limitations is that we did not have um, repeated PSGs over time to understand what the trajectory looks like uh, over time. Um, That's a great point. Uh, one question I have for you as I was reading uh, through your study was, uh, there's, you report respiratory events, saturation. Uh, did you guys measure uh, CO2 levels? We did not uh, in our study. Sure. So. Um, uh, we measured um, N-tidal CO2 in our paper, uh, sorry, in our study because we were interested in demonstrating that we can use this measure. Um, and and what uh, one of the key findings was that because the infants have a faster respiratory rate, um, as demonstrated in the article, we don't see the typical plateauing of N-tidal CO2 um, as you would in an older child. And because of that lack of plateauing, uh, there's a good chance that we underestimate the true blood gas PCO2 at that cross-section of time. But all the same, uh, what we wanted to demonstrate that you can use non-invasive CO2 monitoring in these infants, 
and 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 we wanted to give uh, a frame of reference for what those values would be. And of particular importance was that because we probably don't capture the entire CO2 exhaled, um, so that's the reason why some of the ASM definitions for hypoventilation may not necessarily apply um, in this younger age population, and we might need to have a different bar to identify um, hypoventilation in this group. But uh, Rene brought up an excellent point that we don't have uh, follow-up data to see does this get better and more accurate as the infants get older. Renee told us her main findings from uh, her group of infants at risk uh, in the NICU. Uh, what about in, within your study, your carefully screened healthy infants, what were your main findings? Excellent. So, yeah, in terms of the sleep staging, we basically found relatively equal proportions of REM and non-REM sleep as has been previously very well established. Um, we looked at transitional sleep, which would be the... Um, uh, equivalent of um, indeterminate sleep from uh, from uh, AMBI and uh, Ender's study and found that that was almost about 15% of the recording. We saw a lot more sleep fragmentation as compared to um, older children who have undergone polysomnography. In terms of the arousal index, it was a little higher um, than the uh, older children, uh, sitting at 14.7 on average and uh, a range from 6.2 to 22. We also found hypopneas to be the most common respiratory events that we identified. Uh, central apneas were the next most common, followed by obstructive and then uh, mixed apneas in that order. Most of the respiratory events were very brief, uh, generally five to six seconds long, and this is consistent with previously published literature in early infancy as well. Uh, we definitely found oxygen desaturations uh, taking place at a higher frequency. If you look at the oxygen desaturation index, that was almost 18 per hour. And we also found that the saturation nadir was lower with uh, an average of 84% uh, in the study. And this may largely be related to the uh, respiratory immaturity, uh, physiological immaturity in these infants. Um, and as I already alluded, the entitled CO2 probably read a little lower than what the true blood gas CO2 may have been at that cross-section of time. Having um, several sets of data like these that are pretty similar, and we found, you know, the profile of, of what we found even in our at-risk babies is quite similar, uh, is extremely helpful in order to have comparison for other patient populations. Um, so our group, for example, um, has done a, a pilot study looking at sleep disordered breathing in newborns with myelomeningocele who have multiple reasons for sleep disordered breathing. Um, and we found substantially higher um, AHI, hypopnea indexes, central indexes, um, and obstructive compared to um, both of these other two papers that we've just discussed, um, and additionally compared to uh, age match controls in the NICU at the same time. Uh, so just having multiple data sets uh, that all line up together is, is extremely helpful as we look at specific additional patient populations. A lot of these studies are cross-sectional studies, so having the data kind of um, match up really gives us the confidence um, regarding the reliability of this data. Right. I think the other thing that's really important to note is that um, both of the studies that we've spent the most time talking about looked at full-term babies um, and that uh, 
preterm infants are going to be a, a different population altogether, and we need to be careful uh, that we're not extrapolating data from full-term infants to our preterm infants as well. Yeah, and that's absolutely a very, very important point, so I fully agree with Renee on that. I have a, another question for both of you, which is uh, probably the most frequent respiratory event that we're scoring is in this population is the hypothermia. Uh, and it can be challenging uh, sometimes to distinguish obstructive from central hypopnea. What was your sense as you were looking through these studies uh, uh, in terms of where the majority of these hypopneas uh, reported mostly central or obstructive in nature? Uh, and and how, how do you approach that when you're looking at a study? Oh, good question. So our overall approach at our center is not to distinguish between the two. Um, our sense, gut feeling is that the, the central component is, is the most common, but I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are. Yeah, I fully agree with you. Uh, we do not distinguish uh, central from obstructive um, hypopnea either. And the main reason for that is uh, if you look at the scoring guidelines, really the presence of thoracoabdominal asynchrony of what is commonly known as paradoxical breathing really helps to distinguish whether a hypopnea event is uh, supposed to be scored as obstructive or central. And because of the relatively high chest wall compliance in infants, you will see paradoxical breathing occurring even physiologically, especially during REM sleep, which is when the predominance of respiratory events occur. So in that sense, it's very difficult, um, based on the currently available respiratory scoring guidelines, to clearly distinguish obstructive from central hypopneas. But I agree with Renee that if you were to um, ask me to make a guess, uh, they, they probably are uh, more central than, than obstructive because uh, you don't see any distinct change in the degree of paradox uh, during some of these hypopneas, which makes us feel that this, these are probably more central than truly obstructive hypopneas. But the only effective measure would be if you had um, transesophageal or transthoracic, uh, sorry, transesophageal pressure monitoring, because that would really tell you if there is increased effort or decreased effort during a particular hypopnea, which, you know, when we're already having nasal cannulas and entire CO2 monitors. Yeah, I was going to ask, very do you think families <laughs> would consent to that? Absolutely <laughs> I think having them come for newborn polysomnography itself was a hard enough thing to consent, so uh, let alone doing something invasive like uh, like that with it. So, Agreed. So we have talked a lot about uh, breathing in infants uh, and some sleep architecture uh, parameters. Any sense uh, or anything from your studies that you can tell us about movements, limb movements, body movements in, uh, in infants and what is typical, atypical? Uh, from your studies? So that is a, it's a tricky question for a sick baby, um, depending on what issues that they have. Um, either if they have encephalopathy, their movements may be abnormal in general. Um, additionally, that when we have a, a brand new newborn in the hospital, we tend to have them swaddled. Um, and so objective observation of movements can be, can be pretty tricky. Um, I don't know what your experience was with uh, with normal healthies, um, but a lot of these newborns are are, are swaddled so that it's, it's difficult to really assess. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So, yeah, our infants were also swaddled, but we did have leg EMG. Uh, okay. Although I've not included that data in the, in the published manuscript, um, I do have that data. I haven't analyzed it fully. My 
gut sense at this point of time based on, you know, personally having reviewed these polysomnograms was that the PLM index was less than five in all of these uh, infants, but uh, we haven't done the full data analysis, but it will be something to uh, we may present as an abstract in the future. Um, the babies in general, uh, you know, as Renee already mentioned, you know, there's, they have an immature motor system. They have a lot of uh, benign sleep myoclonus and these kind of movements as well, and we have to be cognizant to make sure those don't get considered as periodic limb movements. So, so that's the only other thing that um, I would add to that. But really, she's the neurologist and the expert on this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're right. I think it's, it's very easy to overcall, you know, normal expected physiologic movements as abnormal or concerning in some way. So I think we have to be very careful um, in how we're characterizing babies' movements. Perfect. And uh, before we wrap up, anything else that either of you uh, would like to convey to our listeners that you think is important about uh, sleep studies and sleep apnea and in infants, kind of the take-home messages you want them to hear uh, based on the studies you've done but also based on your experience? I think as a as a neurologist um, and a clinical researcher interested in sleep, I I view sleep as as a fundamental marker of a newborn's brain function, um, and we absolutely need to get more rigorous data uh, to understand what should be expected, what's normal and physiologic, and what isn't. Um, I think the other really important aspect here from a clinical perspective is if we can define what normal is, then we can start to define what abnormal is, and then we can look at see what would be the correct interventions um, that may result in improved general health and neurodevelopment. I agree. That's an excellent point. And I think the goal of this study was just to um, have some kind of basic reference data to go with really a true normative data study would look at the same infant over multiple cross-sections of time um, and probably do follow-up uh, evaluations like neurocognitive analysis that Renee has done to truly prove that the AHIs that we are seeing are absolutely normal. Having said that, a lot of the times uh, we have um, newborns that are in the NICU and with the increasing availability of surgical interventions for all kinds of interventions from micrognathia to BPD uh, uh, treatment, we need to have some kind of frame of reference. And one of the things to recognize is that uh, infants are particularly prone to hypopneas because of their low respiratory reserve. And there are physiological reasons for this. First of all, the upper airway um, is more compliant and more easily collapsible, uh, which predisposes to airway obstructions. And the second thing is that the chest wall is a lot more compliant and infants are dynamically maintaining their functional residual capacity above the closing volume. So this predisposes them during apneas to very easily lose FRC, their oxygen reserve, and desaturate. And when your bar is only a 3% change in saturation associated with airflow disturbances, it's very easy to meet the hypopnea criteria um, in these young infants. And the second thing to keep in mind is that uh, infants, particularly in newborns, have a high percentage still of fetal hemoglobin, which based on its oxygen dissociation curve, which is more parabolic than the S-shaped curve that you would see with adult hemoglobin, are prone to deeper desaturations or more severe desaturations very easily because they get to the precipice on the oxygen dissociation curve very quickly. So, so due to these things, you may often find that the 
SpO2 nadir or the saturation nadir tends to be a lot lower in these uh, newborns. And uh, the key thing that is important is how are these infants recovering? What's their physiologic response to this? Um, because even if you look at the Khan study, the lack of restlessness and the autonomic instability uh, were really the clues that tell you that the control of breathing is still immature and renders these individuals vulnerable to adverse outcomes. So I think that polysomnography with its detailed physiologic recording of cardiorespiratory and neurological parameters gives you a sense for what is the oxygen reserve, what is the integrity of breathing, and how effectively is this infant recovering from respiratory events uh, that could be occurring. So I think that for me, those were the main take-home points from uh, from the studies. Right, and I think from, from my perspective too that there there's um, no way that we can do polysonograms on every infant that we encounter. On the other hand, um, as we get more detailed information and the research becomes more robust, um, my hope and goal would be that we can identify the, the important risk factors so that um, we wouldn't just rely on a bedside monitor for an at-risk infant uh, and feel potentially falsely reassured that they are doing fine um, and that we would refer those patients for formal polysomnography to really identify and get a good grasp of, of their sleep disorder breathing and their sleep architecture. Dr. Shellhoff and Daftari, uh, thank you both again for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise. Uh, I would encourage our listeners to read your recently published articles. Dr. Daftari's is in the March issue of JCSM and Dr. Shellhoff is in the August issue of Pediatric Pulmonology. Uh, finally, uh, thanks for our listeners for tuning in uh, to this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast.